It's February 12th, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we cover the Geek Beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Matt Heim from Electric Pencil to tell us about the upcoming Pacific Bridge Conference for Entrepreneurs. Finally, we will talk about Voice of the Sea, a new program about the ocean around us. We'd love your questions and comments as part of the conversation. Be ready to call in or tweet. But first, the headlines. Well, the HCDC has a new chief. Robbie Melton has been named the executive director and CEO of the High Tech Development Corporation established by the state in 1983 to foster Hawaii's high-tech industry. One of Melton's first jobs was at the University of Hawaii focused on technology transfer in agriculture, and she's a past president of the Asia-Pacific American Chamber of Commerce in Hawaii. Most recently, she served as the director of entrepreneurial innovation at Maryland's Technology and Tech Development Corporation. Melton earned her Master's of Science degree at George Washington University in Science, Technology, and Public Policy, and went on to work for the university and then the state of Maryland. She also founded Women in Bio, an organization dedicated to promoting careers and leadership for women in the life sciences, which now has nearly a dozen chapters in the U.S. and Canada. Women in Bio recently established a scholarship fund in her name. Melton is also a past chair of the MIT Enterprise Forum board and has been ranked as one of the top 100 women in Maryland for several years. For several years. She succeeds former HTDC head Yuka Nagashima, who left the agency last summer, as well as interim director Len Higashi. Melton told Bite Marks Cafe, I am delighted to return to Hawaii and get integrated back into the tech community. The entrepreneurial ecosystem in Honolulu is thriving with so many organizations and cool tech companies. I would like to broaden the scope as so that uh, we include all things tech, not just high tech. Hawaii has an opportunity to cultivate more startups and more SBIR awards and will be ultimately built so ultimately can build solid companies and strong economy. Now, you know, um, I actually heard about this uh, through a video that I saw. It was, it was uh, actually, um, uh, there was an interview that ThinkTech did with um, Robbie Melton that uh, Cindy Matsuki did. And, um, you know, most of this is there. It's it's uh, actually released was uh, <laughs> yesterday, so it was pretty brand new, hot off the presses. And, and so she's getting, uh, you know, getting some exposure, kind of making the rounds, kind of quietly meeting some people. I heard she was even over at the Startup Weekend kind of shaking some hmm. hands. Well, her first day was actually last week. So, you know, she is basically trying to get integrated and get connected with the community here. She also did a uh, quick interview with Pacific Business News, and mm-hmm. she basically said, I'm not ready to talk about plans. I need to get a better idea of what's happening in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. But her background is interesting. You know, life sciences, uh, she definitely seems to have an interest in agriculture. And so when she says all tech, not just high tech, mm-hmm. it seems that, you know, she's she will obviously probably support the same things the HTD does in terms of startups and apps and mobile development and such like that, but perhaps um, still broaden that scope to other sectors, including agriculture. Mm-hmm. She was involved with an uh, uh, investment company called uh, Tedco, I guess, in Maryland, and they offered a lot of uh, startup capital to some of the uh, biotech startups uh, in Maryland. Yeah, but actually Tedco is almost the equivalent organization there. So, I mean, definitely mm-hmm. a lot of relevant activity for the HTDC. We'll certainly have her on the show soon to talk about herself and her, her vision. 
Meanwhile, over at the state's Office of Information Management and Technology, Hawaii's first chief information officer, Sunny Bagawalia, has been tapped for a new executive leadership position by Governor Neil Abercrombie. Effective next Tuesday, Bagawalia will serve as the governor's chief advisor for technology and cybersecurity. It's a role intended to raise Hawaii's profile at the national level. Deputy CIO of Operations, Keone Kai, will succeed him as the state's CIO. Well, Governor Abercrombie said in a statement, now more than ever, we need Sunny to help our state next uh, take the next step to ensure we establish a cohesive technology and cybersecurity strategy, position Hawaii for the future federal collaboration and um, investments, and encourage our community stakeholders to continue to support Hawaii's technology transformation. Meanwhile, Deputy CIO of Business Transformation, Randy Baltimore, will move from OIMT to the governor's office to become Neil Abercrombie's Director of Strategic Initiatives. The changes come as the state releases its CIO annual report, recapping the two and a half years since the creation of the office. OIMT and the CIO position were created in 2011 and were supported by $4.5 million so far from the Hawaii Community Foundation's Omidyar Ohana Fund. A 1,400-page transformation plan was created, and it lays out a 12-year roadmap to restore the state's technology to the cutting edge. The annual report highlights earlier accomplishments of the transformation initiative focused in three strategic areas, modernizing and securing its technology and infrastructure, boosting transparency and accountability, and re-engineering the way the state does businesses by moving more services online. Well, congratulations to, go, you know, goes out to all of them. Um, you know, I think it's a, a logical move because when Sonny came in, it was really uh, the need to sort of communicate the vision for Hawaii's transformation and get the technology uh, I guess, you know, shared with all the people that needed to make the decision, especially the legislature. Well, so he was he was our first CIO, and he had a high profile at the federal level. So mm-hmm. it was, in many ways, largely to to kind of put that that flag in the ground and say, we are serious about this, we are doing this, and yes, this is the broad vision we have. And I think, uh, you know, like any kind of startup, he has the vision. And now, I think his role continues to be in that visionary role where relationships need to still be fostered with Washington, D.C., with federal programs. And and I think he's better able to do that in the governor's office. And then Keone does more of the implementation of the plan that was put forth you know, over the last couple of years. Right. I, mean, I don't work as closely with the office as you might, but I mean, I've heard good things about Keone, and specifically it is about, this is really about moving from a planning and designing mm-hmm. of systems to actually implementing them and and, and, crea- and getting them going. Um, and I shouldn't mention that these new positions, essentially, the new chief advisor and director positions, are also funded through a grant from the Hawaii Community Foundation. Mm-hmm. Well, next up, the first startup weekend, Honolulu, of 2014, wrapped up on Sunday night over at the Box Jelly in Kaka'ako. Uh, with the final pitches and judging closing out 54 hours of creativity and entrepreneurial activity, the winner was Green Apple, an app to crowdfund school supplies to help teachers who inevitably buy classroom supplies out of their own pockets. Teachers would create a registry or wish list, wish list, and parents and the community would support them by buying the supplies for them. Second place went to Name Hub, spearheaded by Mark and Tiffany Kazada. The slogan is Discover Domains, Grow Ideas. The web app is designed to foster a community to share domain names and explore ideas that are floating around in your network. Third place went to Carrot, an iOS app that simply displays the current value of a Bitcoin. The team included Spencer Toyama, uh, designer. John Lewis, developer Kyle Oba, and of course, Bitcoin Hawaii co-founders and recent Bite Marks Cafe guests, Sam Durham and McKay Davis. 
And honorable mention went to uh, Tidy Panda, an app to fix the bad roommate problem, sorting out chores and facilitating communications while generating revenue through sales of household supplies. Visiting judges for this round include Eric Nakagawa, co-founder of I Can Has Cheeseburger and Simple Honey. Uh, Steve Markowitz, angel investor and co-founder of MyPoints.com. Devin um, Egan, who co-founded Launch Key and Startup Weekend Las Vegas winner. And, of course, uh, George Kellerman, partner at 500 Startups. You know, interesting lineup of folks that uh, won. Uh, I'm interested in this uh, name hub. Uh, You know, that's kind of an interesting domain name. I mean, everybody collects all these domain names, and this is maybe a way to share them with some of your friends. Right. Well, some people more than others. I would certainly consider myself a domain addict Mm -hmm. and uh, generally have... Well, I don't even want to put enough. more domains than I have actual websites for because I have a brilliant idea. I say I'm going to build it, and it's been five years, and I'm still just sitting on the domain mm-hmm. name. So I think that being able to see what you have and to see what Mark has and Tiffany has and goes, wait a minute, I had that same idea. Or that's a better name for something close to what I was thinking about. Let's do something. Let's build something. I, 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 it was my favorite. Mm-hmm. But I actually liked the uh, the winner, too, Green Apple. Basically, you give a teacher an app that's easy to use. It can scan barcodes. They can go to Long's and go, I need these crayons. I need this paper. I need th- these supplies. And then their supporters can basically they can crowdfund and buy it. And, in fact, um, during the presentations, the, the first question from a judge was like, actually, I don't have a question. I just have to tell you, build this. Mm-hmm. right? I don't care about this contest or anything. This is something that needs to be built. So I hope something comes of that for sure. And of course, the carrot, I mean, we're all wondering wondering what is our uh, latest, you know, sort of Bitcoin and Dogecoin wallet. I mean, what's, you know, right. what does it translate to? Well, speaking of uh, cryptocurrency that was launched largely for laughs is already starting to shift into serious business. Dogecoin, as Bert mentioned, it's a form of digital currency inspired by an internet meme involving photos of Shiba Inu dogs and funny captions. But two months after it's been created, the Dogecoin is already the third most valuable cryptocurrency in the world. And this week, this quirky broken English charm is making some waves right here in Honolulu. Well, Hawaii born entrepreneur Eric Nakagawa, who is in town in part to serve as a Startup Weekend judge, has been giving thousands of Dogecoins to local techies, including Startup Weekend participants, as well as even to Bite Marks Cafe, and I think he might have bought this story. Uh, (laughs) He has partnered with the local app DareShare to offer a $50,000 Dogecoin prize for the funniest picture posted with with an Olympic theme. Uh, that's a modest $40 or so at today's Dogecoin value, half of which goes to the person who posts the their share photo and half of which goes to the nonprofit of their choosing. And yesterday, Nakagawa successfully purchased a pizza using Dogecoin. That's an act that's kind of becoming a trademark milestone among digital currencies. He used a Twitter-based Dogecoin tipping system to trade 10,000 Dogecoins for a pizza and a beer from J.J. Dolan's Pizza in downtown Honolulu. Dogecoins debuted in December with a real-world value of about a hundredth of a cent, and their relative abundance compared to bitcoins make them a popular currency for micropayments and online tips. But that could change as international exchanges start to trade them and more people start to use them to buy and sell more substantial goods and services. Well, Eric, uh, you know, tipped me like a thousand uh, Dogecoin, and of course, the first thing I did was look at the conversion rate, and that translates to about a dollar. It's getting close to a dollar. So yeah. thank you, Eric. And, you know, we full disclosure, this happened, but he's he is such a crazy guy for Dogecoin that he is on Twitter at Eric Nakagawa, by the way. Um, he's like, you want some Dogecoins? You want some Dogecoins? He's just giving them away. Well, he's also mining them, too. So right, he's, right. he set up a, a little server to, <laughs> to mine it. 
Right. But I mean, Bitcoin is climbing the charts. It's actually based on the Litecoin uh, system. So there's a number of them. They, there's probably a Bitcoin for Star Wars, a Bitcoin for Angry Birds. You know, I'm sure there are dozens, if not hundreds of these alternate currencies. But it's funny that Dogecoin is getting this traction because it was almost started on a lark. It's like, I, I love these cute pictures of these dogs with the funny captions. Let's call it Dogecoin. Well, you know, and the other thing that's kind of interesting is that you can actually use Twitter quite extensively to get the, you know, your your Dogecoin tips out. So, right, right. you know, so what Eric did was he tipped me through Twitter. I could go and, uh, you know, and respond through Twitter and then I can actually transfer from one wallet to another wallet through Twitter. So right. it's all, you know, it's all. Anyway, getting back to this, uh, there's a contest. You go to DareShare, look at that, uh, look at the contest rules, and then, you know, submit your photos that are sort of Olympic-themed, and you got till next Wednesday, and there'll be a ton of Dogecoin if you win. So yeah, DareShare uh, by Huala Grivy. Yep. It's largely on uh, for college campuses, but if you're listening to the show, you're probably an early adopter. You should really check out DareShare. Okay, sounds good. And finally, a couple of uh, quick uh, notes here on our tech calendar. February 22nd brings the 25th annual Hawaii Physics Olympics and Regional Bridge Building Contest. About 120 high school students in 30 teams from public and private schools on Oahu will engage each other in five fun events based on concepts in physics. That's Saturday, February 22nd from 8.30 to 11 a.m. in the morning on uh, over at the Physical Science Building in Watanabe Hall over at the UH Manoa campus. And the following Saturday, we have to mention this, and we may mention it again. It brings an event that Bert has spearheaded for the past seven years. Unconference is a unique gathering of techies, teachers, creators, makers, uh, basically people who want to come together, and the program is designed by its participants. Likely topics that we're seeing on the board already include cryptocurrencies, civilian and commercial drones, citizen journalism, open data, of course, all topics we've covered here on Bite Marks Cafe. Unconference 2014 will be held Saturday, March 1st, 3-1 at Windward Community College. And for more information, please go to unconference, that's with a Z, dot com. And I'll definitely put it up on the show notes. Anyway, joining us in the studio is Matt Heim from Electric Pencil, and he's here to tell us about the Pacific Bridge Conference. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks. Glad to glad that you can have me. Yeah, well, you know, we've been uh, kind of interested in what this uh, Pacific Bridge Conference is all about, and maybe you know, maybe back up a little bit and tell us a little bit about the entrepreneurial organization that's kind of you know sort of like the host of this uh, conference. Sure, the Entrepreneurs Organization is a worldwide community of almost ten thousand entrepreneurs from uh, about forty-seven countries, and locally we have uh, forty members. With uh, we employ f- or fourteen hundred employees, and I think the economic impact is about two hundred million into the state. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what we do is we help uh, entrepreneurs learn and grow through peer-to-peer learning, once-in-a-lifetime experiences, and expert connections. Now, you know, we've been sort of featuring a lot of uh, programs to foster entrepreneurship in Hawaii. Uh, give us a sense of, you know, the membership in Entrepreneur Organization. I mean, your company, Electric Pencil, as as well as uh, um, Han Blue, I mean, you guys have been around for a little while, but are there sort of like the range of entrepreneurs in, in uh, EO? Sure, there's a really wide range. I mean, one of the, one of the criteria is that you have at least a million dollars in sales. So we have a wide, a wide range of, of people anywhere from one million all the way up to maybe 30 million. Okay, so the, uh, the, the startup entrepreneur is probably not going to qualify to be a part of EO then. That startup weekend they're having right now with Eric Nakagawa, <laughs> no, no, those no. guys aren't going to qualify. But they will get there. They'll get there with that. They will get there, <laughs> definitely. So tell us about this event. I mean, it's a five-day conference. It sounds pretty intensive. What does it involve? Well, basically, uh, it's, 
it's coming from a regional event in Asia called Asia Bridge, mm-hmm. and they've been having that for quite a few years. And this year, the entrepreneur organization, their goal is to engage the world. And so they thought, well, let's have let's move it to Hawaii, and then we'll have people from all over the world join together so we can – get together and have these international relationships and and have some cultural activities and show them really what Hawaii is all about. Mm-hmm. So do you have a, uh, a lineup of speakers or panels or what, what do you guys uh, really try to accomplish in, in the Pacific Bridge? Right. They're, they're, it's basically a two-part uh, what we call Pacific Bridge campus. And one of them is the learning sessions, which uh, the keynote speakers are Nainoa Thompson mm-hmm. And also Hank Rogers of Tetris fame, and I believe he's trying to go to Mars or the moon or something. So uh, that's going to be interesting. And then we're also going to be taking them on some cultural activities that you would normally not – you know, the normal tourist would not be able to go there. So mm-hmm. Now, is this uh, open primarily to, to Hawaii uh, entrepreneurs, or is this going to be attracting members from across, you know, the ocean? Well, we've we've got attendees coming from, uh, I believe, Germany. We have some coming from Nigeria. We have some from the U.S., and a lot of them are coming from the different countries in Asia, the Philippines, China, Japan, mm-hmm. Singapore. And um, but but we do have um, we. I'm sorry. You mean like, uh, uh, do you have an opportunity for these entrepreneurs to interact with each other and maybe, you know, strike up some relationships and some deals and you know maybe do some side side bargaining? Well, I don't know about side bargaining, but we do. I mean, entrepreneurs are a unique bunch of people. They have different problems than a mm-hmm. lot of uh, normal workers have, and so when you when you're trying to share experiences and get peer to peer learning, I mean, only an entrepreneur can understand what an entrepreneur oh, goes yeah. goes yeah, through yeah. and what keeps you up at night. Yeah. But certainly, I would imagine you know Hawaii entrepreneurs and people from here or spending time here or doing business here have a very unique perspective, just as someone from anywhere around the Pacific. So, is there? I mean, do you see any kind of groups or uh, demographics from from Hawaii participating in this upcoming event? Sure. I mean, the you know the average uh, entrepreneur member is anywhere between 30 and 40 years old. I'm on a little bit on the older bit of the scale. Ah, You Um, look young to me. I look young and (laughs) I act quite immature, but, uh, uh, you know, I can get along with the 30s and the 40s. But, uh, you know, we take anybody who has really a a, uh, thirst for learning, Mm -hmm. you know, that wants to go boldly and and can, you know, look at everybody with trust and respect and get along. Well, I think, you know, the criteria given that, uh, you know, to be a part of entrepreneurial organizations, Organizations, you have to have sort of that million-dollar revenue coming in. There's probably a lot of war stories that uh, these guys can tell you. <laughs> now, tell us a little bit about – well, tell us quickly where uh, can somebody go to find out more about Pacific Bridge? Well, you can go to we, – we do have a website. It's eopacificbridge.com, mm-hmm. and that's where all the, the uh, information is about it. We are um, taking selected uh, entrepreneurs that would like to join us. Uh, they do have to, of course, meet the minimum mm-hmm. requirement. And um, so, yeah, we'd, we'd love to have more entrepreneurs because that's what it's all about is, is gathering the community. And, and uh, again, when, when is this going to be? This is February 19th okay. through the 23rd, so it's right around the corner. Right around. Sounds good. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you.
And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Kanisa Sher- uh, Duncan Serafin, and she's here to tell us about Voice of the Sea. How did Voice of the Sea go from an idea to reality? We'd, of course, love your thoughts, comments as part of the conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live and we're monitoring Twitter, so you can tweet us your questions at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Many local businesses and organizations support Hawaii Public Radio. Through corporate sponsorships, they provide us with 25% of our operating budget. It's a way to reach HPR's audience with your message and at the same time support the station. And we'd love to provide you with on-air recognition for your support. To learn more, go to the HPR website, hawaiipublicradio.org, and click on support. The HPR website. It's just a click away. Hawaii Island guitarist Chris Yetten returns to HPR's Atherton Studio February 22nd at 7.30 p.m. A protege of both Keola Beamer and John Keave, Chris brings his unique blend of slack key and fingerstyle guitar to HPR on Saturday, February 22nd. Call 955-8821 during business hours or purchase online at hprtickets.org. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Kanisa Duncan Serafin. Kanisa is the Associate Professor over at the College of Education Curriculum and Research Development. And she's also a University of Hawaii Sea Grant College Programs Director of the Center for Marine Science Education. And her recent project is Voice of the Sea, an original reality-based half-hour television show that was developed through the University of Hawaii Sea Grant College Program. And of course, this timely program features scientific and cultural work in the Pacific. And of course, if you have any comments or questions and would like to give us a call, the number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or one eight seven seven. Nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor islands, Kanisa. Welcome to Bike Marks Cafe. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, you know flying all the way to Oahu to <laughs> join us in the studio. This is great. Now, um, you know the the idea for um, the uh, show. I guess I, I'm kind of curious. It was probably some idea that you had, and how did it sort of evolve into an actual series that is getting aired on I think K five, right? Yeah, that's a great question. So I work in the curriculum research and development group at the College of Education, and primarily we develop curriculum for pre-K through um, 20 or, or through high school level. And we're actually working on a marine science curriculum. And so in thinking about educating our students about what is marine science, what are these ocean literacy concepts that we want students to know and understand and care about by the time they graduate from high school, you know, there's so many stories and just the voices of the people who are out there doing ocean science that we wanted to convey. And you can only do so much, you know, through written words Mm -hmm. and pictures. And so the video um, media allows us to really get out there and and interact and show that it's not just the PhD scientists that are involved in, in studying ocean science. It's Um, all the technical careers that also support our endeavors in learning about the ocean, as well as the cultural practitioners. And I really wanted to be able to bring those kind of conversations outside the walls of the classroom and into people's homes. And so with the Voice of the Sea, our idea is that it will allow students and their families and the general public to sort of 
get a glimpse as to what's going on here in Hawaii as well as throughout the Pacific um, with ocean science. Um, and by ocean science, I mean not just, like I said, the, the PhD type of ocean science, but mm-hmm. also cultural practitioners and, and also what's happening on the land and how our practices on land are influencing the health of the ocean. Now, uh, Kanisa, I mean, and I, I was enthralled with the idea of your show. Later in this program, we're actually going to try uh, to incorporate some some sound clips from your program. But I have to say, I mean, I certainly could imagine a world where I could say, hey, let's do a reality series where I travel around the Pacific. I talk to really interesting people doing really interesting things. And that's what I mean, that's my job. Let's do that for, for my job. And getting it from there to actually having it funded and becoming uh, a television host, not just a researcher or an educator, but someone who stands in front of the camera and entertains and educates people. I mean, how, how did that journey work? How did this program get funded? Well, like I said, we're, we're working on this marine science curriculum. Mm-hmm. And so it was part of a, a grant that we wrote to NOAA, and we're working with the NOAA Pacific Services Center. And so uh, the funding actually came as part of um, some of Senator Inouye's funding through Congress. And uh, there was a, a call for proposals, and we submitted a proposal. So the show itself is tied into the Exploring Our Fluid Earth curriculum that we're also developing concurrently at the same time. And the curriculum um, is based on some prior work that we've done through the Curriculum Research mm-hmm. and Development Group, the, mm-hmm. the Fluid Earth and the Living Ocean, which are actually award-winning marine science textbooks, but they're sort of uh, have been outdated. And so we're updating them and we're putting them online. And we have this amazing interactive website that we've actually been working with the um, Distance Course Design and Consulting Group at UH to build. And it has a, a teacher community where teachers can actually share documents and things like that. But the Voice of the Sea show, what's so great about it is that it's actually tied into content in the curriculum. And so it works as a standalone piece for the general public, but mm. then it also um, kind of takes the ocean science concepts to the next level and, and shows you the reality of, you know, what are we doing with plankton or how are sea turtles being studied or what what's happening with fish ponds and how are those cultural practices being reinvigorated and, and what's happening with them in modern life. And so, um, you know, if you think about an old style textbook and there used to be sort of those color blocks in the square up in the right hand corner or something Mm -hmm. where it had like learn more about this subject. And I think that our our voice of the sea is really learn more about ocean sciences, but we don't just give you some pictures and words. We actually take you out into the field and and we get to talk with the people and, and show you what it is that they do and, and what they're finding out. You know, you know, the thing that's kind of interesting is, you know, Ryan and I, we have all these ideas about, you know, t- going to exotic places and, you know, taking the camera and doing video of us. But it's probably most likely to have a life on YouTube or Vimeo or, you know, maybe just on your hard drive, right? How do you actually get it on TV? I mean, because what you're describing is great, right? I mean, it could... It could be a curriculum. It could have all these purposes in the classroom. But to actually get it on TV is a whole nother sort of leap of, of you know, exposure. Absolutely. And, you know, when we were funded, we did not have a partnership with a television station. And so it was sort of kind of those if we build it, then they will come um, sort of ideas. But we had talked to K5 mm-hmm. um, prior to building the show. And, and we had a couple of other uh, ideas as well as where we might um, showcase it. But K5 ended up um, wanting the show and, and they're a wonderful partner for us. They uh, are airing 20 promos a week for Voice of the Sea, as well as 19 new episodes a year and 33 reruns. And they also have a website for us. So they actually archive the shows after they've aired on television. So folks from Hawaii and also around the world can log on and 
view the episodes. Yeah, that's no, great. We're talking to Kanisa Duncan Serafin. She's an associate professor at the College of Education over at UH Manoa, as well as the director of the Center for Marine Science Education at the Sea Grant Pro College Program. And if you have a question about uh, what some of her adventures have taught her, or in fact, an idea for perhaps season two of Voice of the Sea, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We're trying to listen on Twitter, but our Wi-Fi is not cooperating today, so maybe the <laughs> phone line and your beautiful voice is the way to go today. Now, Kanisa, I mean, uh, you're a serious educator, you're a researcher, but again, I, I, I got to ask, I mean, isn't this fun that <laughs> how, you're a new mom, you're, you work at the university, but you get to go and travel and you have to stand with people and have compelling conversations with them. I mean, your background also, you were, uh, I think, an internationally ranked paddleboard uh, competitor. So how do you kind of turn yourself from all of these different hats to someone who is basically an anchor for a TV show? Um, I think that I'd had experience in front of the camera from a lot of my sports work over the years. And then also some of our research at UH, I studied under Dr. Kim Holland and mm-hmm. his lab does a lot of big fish shark type research. And yeah, we so had, we had him on the show as well. Yeah. Great. Um, and so I'd had experience through him mm-hmm. and in our lab doing work with BBC and National Geographic and among others. And so I'd gotten a taste of it and, and seen him as a real master in that. And and that was partly probably some of the ideas for what we're doing now is that I saw there was really an interest if it was done well. And that I think sharks and sort of that charismatic megafauna aren't the only marine science topics whose story needs to be told Mm -hmm. and i think what we get to do with the show is is really bring to life some of the you know smaller you know microscopic plankton topics and um show the beauty and and the interest that they are they have now we we've uh we've got a couple of clips that are kind of queued up and we wanted to give our our listeners a little taste of you know what you sort of cover in the show uh, maybe you can introduce the, the, the first uh, couple clips that are kind of about the uh, Maui fish pond. Sure. So first we're going to hear from Kimo Keokapahulehua, and he's actually the president of Maui Fish Pond Association. And we're over in Kihei on mm-hmm. the south side of Maui at Kalepolepo Fish Pond. It's also known as Koieie Lokoia. Um, and he's going to tell us a little bit about the strength of the fish pond wall and what it means about the Hawaiian village where it's at. So if you ever seen a local ia, the first thing that came to your mind was if you came with a canoe, you're going to blow your pool to ask permission to come. If you didn't blow your pool, then you came for another reason, right? You came to take. But if you seen the wall, you wouldn't want to come take from me because my people put that many rocks on the wall for them to do to protect their family, they, they have the power and the strength. So this is not the place you would want to come and play with the people. They've been putting stones for a long time. So they can throw stones to you with a slingshot, but they're very, very strong people. And also that tells you that this village, because they have a local ia, was totally intact. Anything behind the women, the men, the children was really, really strong. The houses were beautiful. The mats, the things the ladies made was beautiful. The man canoes was great and strong because that represents the signature of the village. These are strong people. So anything they had behind them, they took care of. So they can take care of you too. 
<laughs> and of course, you're only getting the audio, but he's still painting a great picture that you probably can see when you watch the show. And uh, I think, Himokeo, we have a little bit more from him as well. And the other thing that the local ER was, if you were the king and the queen, and you went to that place, had no fish, you would not stop for there. You would stop here because I have great wealth for you. And the wealth was the fish. And they'll remember, oh, Kim Mokeo had beautiful ER. Let's stop over there. You know what I mean? So for him or she to stop to another village, you have to have something special for them. And that was the land tax. So if he had kalo, that was the payment. If he had feathers, that was the payment. If he had gourds, that was a payment. So they came to check the people. They never come to take from you. Because if they needed everything, they collected all the resources. So when Makahiki came, you came from another place and we challenged each other. And the challenge was by strength and the challenge was by things that you provided your village. Because if she had made a beautiful lame or something, as an Ali, I would ask my people, what village she came from. So they would tell me, oh, she's from Wailuku. So I would send my son to go to Wailuku to wed with you and bring that feather lady with him home. Because then he find you and he, we get the best feather lady in my village. So that's how the Makahiki was. They kept the eye on the canoes <laughs> and the weapon and everything. And they harvest that resource. And they look at my fish, and they find out, wow, he get big fish and sweet. What makes him so special? Go find out. Go send the girl, go marry him, bring him home, you know. And so each Ahapua'a, each Moku had a resource. And they, they made it so great that we have what they call kahakai. Every island have a trail like Kalalau. You know Kalalau? So there's a kahakai trail that goes around the island. And that's how the Ali went around the island, check on his village on a Kahakai trail, place to place. Because Moko Makai was the same village, right? You know, so he, he would just go to the Kahakai and then everybody would come down. And each village would show what he had. That was uh, Kimokeo Kapahu Lehua. Um, and... Uh, featured in an episode of Voice of the Sea. For if you're just joining us, we're talking to Kanisa Duncan Serfin. She's a director for uh, set at the Center for Marine Science Education at the Sea Grant College Program, as well as an associate professor at the College of Education. And uh, you know, the, the the storytelling I can definitely see giving them the time to really give you the context of what's happening. But another question comes to mind is, you know, there is a science aspect of it as well as the cultural aspect of it. So how do you, in putting this program together, especially with the NOAA grant and their interest in the curriculum, um, decide on that balance between native or indigenous cultural practices and the importance of that history and, for example, plankton and other um, life forms and the biology of the ocean? Well, that was uh, sort of a long process in... um setting up a, a giant Excel spreadsheet with topics that we wanted to cover. So outlining our curriculum and uh, and then kind of going back and forth between uh, our developers and our, our NOAA partner, um, as well as Sea Grant and uh, the SOAS folks um, to decide what we were going to feature. And then, of course, it, it depends a little bit on who we can actually 
um, get time with. Exactly. <laughs> so for, from for, from the funding partners, for example, it was always part of the idea here that there would be kind of this mix, correct? I mean, it wasn't going to be a hard science show, um, but it was going to really talk about the peoples of the Pacific. Right. It, it's sharing the the stories of the people who are the, the scientists and the, the people out doing cultural um, activities in the ocean. And and to be fair, the Kimokeo's episode does have a lot of science of the fish pond within it. Um, the clips that we chose to, to share with you today um, are a little bit more on the cultural side. But mm-hmm. what I love about what he, he's talking about is some of the details that you, you just don't get even reading. You know, if you go to MauiFishPond.com and their website, some of those those details just aren't in there. They're not what people always write about. And so Kimokeo has so much knowledge. Um, and, and if you watch the episode, you learn about the history and, and also some of the, the practices that, that just aren't always written down. You know, I, I found it, you know, really kind of intriguing how he shared so much so freely in that cut, uh, clip that you provided. I'm, I'm wondering, was it, Something that you had to build his sort of trust in tor- in terms of, you know, being as open as he was about telling sort of the history and the purpose and the importance of uh, the makahiki and, and what the elii were doing and, and how, you know, them as cultural practitioners were sort of, you know, there to create the best kinds of fish and produce for the elii if they came to visit. Um, that's something that perhaps, you you know, you might not get if you're just a, a film uh, or video documenter coming and saying, hey, bro, what you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I think that th- that's one of the really amazing things about making this show is that I get to be the person in that position who talks with all these amazing people and and they get to share their story. And, you know, it's probably partly because we're making the show. And so hopefully it's, it's giving value to them and their practice or their um, association by sharing it with us and, and we get to put it on television and so that's beneficial um, but I also we allow people to to share their voice and share their story and so I don't go in with a lot of scripted questions mm-hmm. you know I do my research ahead of time and I have ideas and, and things that I want to ask them and topics that are relevant for you know my agenda but um, we really let people speak to their heart and I think that what we're able to capture is 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 a little bit of of their soul and and it comes through on on the show and and that's probably and you know the other downside is some of the most beautiful moments we just they don't make the cut. That was what I was going to yeah, ask. Yeah. I mean, it sounded like you might have could have gotten a four hour conversation um, with Kimo Keo. So that's that that must be a tough decision to make. You know, we've got a bunch of uh, audio clips uh, kind of lined up, uh, and we want to kind of kind of keep them in sequence. So. Uh, before we go to the the next clip, which is going to be about Tara Oceans, we want to kind of hold that, and we'll come back after this short break to continue our conversation with Kanisa Duncan Seraphin about the creation of the program called Voice of the Ocean. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe. How does one run an economy in a drought? It's very important for California to attract businesses. And in a way that you need to attract businesses is you have to ensure 100% reliable, available water. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Farmers, big problems. The rest of the state, too, maybe. We'll tell you more next time on Marketplace. It's from APN. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe.
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Phil Cousineau, author of Burning the Midnight Oil. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the mysteries of the night. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Kanisa Duncan Serfin about telling the story of the Pacific Ocean. And, of course, it's Voice of the Sea. And, of course, uh, <laughs> how do you see this program changing our perceptions of the ocean? And, of course, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Now, you know, uh, we were kind of t- talking about... Um, Kimo Kale and, and his fish pond on Maui. And, and uh, we want to sort of uh, segue into another interesting segment that, uh, um, Kanisa, I think I'll let you uh, introduce. Okay, so our next piece is sort of changing gears kind of dramatically mm-hmm. and, and to talk about the Tara Oceans Expedition. And it's really a, a fascinating story. So the boat itself is a 36-meter aluminum schooner. It weighs 120 tons and it used to be or was originally um, run by Sir Peter Blake who's sort of a New Zealand hero um, and he worked for the um, Custosis Society and it's an Antarctic um, ice going vessel and but he was actually, long story, but he was killed by pirates and um, so the boat was now taken over and it's run as a French nonprofit since 2003 and it's been uh, into the ice, into the Antarctic. It's also been locked in the ice in the northern Arctic. Um, and it spent uh, two years doing a, the first global study of marine plankton. And so that's when we caught up with the ship in Honolulu. After its epic odyssey through the Arctic ice flow, the schooner Tara continues on its mission to serve the planet. A century after Cook, Darwin and Haeckel, a team of scientists take off on an expedition to explore life hidden under the surface of the oceans. An exceptional three-year journey across the world's seas to understand the impact of the oceans in the future of our planet. A strange and fascinating microscopic world lives under the ocean's skin, made up of millions of species, most of them unknown to man, but whose role is vital. The seawater's secret inhabitants are called plankton. This is an extremely complex world, very dynamic, that we are beginning to define. From seas to oceans, Tara will explore the submarine canopies in their millions of microscopic algae. This plant-like plankton, phytoplankton, produces half of the Earth's oxygen. Its role is key to the planet's climate. Exploration which will reveal an invisible animal world of infinite diversity, that of the zooplankton. I'm certain that 98% of these organisms are unheard of. Atlantic, Mediterranean, Indian Ocean, every time we probe the depths, precious samples of marine life will enrich our hold. What we are leaving to future generations are excellent quality samples. From Barcelona to Beirut, passing through Libya, and soon the shores of Africa, we will sound the oceans, we will probe their secrets. This journey to the heart of the oceans will plunge us into worlds teeming with life made up of algae, crustaceans, medusas, and into the even stranger world of bacteria and viruses. Who are these secret inhabitants? What are its powers? 
What can we learn about this marine world in link with the global warming of our planet? Teachings useful to mankind? These are the challenges of this historically unique expedition, the new Tara expedition, Tara Oceans. Well, that's a lot different from the... Very uh, adventurous. Kale, yeah. I, I'm, I'm ready to get on I'm that ready. boat myself. <laughs> I want to take a ride. So, Kanisa, who, who, a little bit more on, on Tara Oceans. Who are we going to hear from next? Um, well, next you're going to hear a little bit about plankton. So the purpose of Tara Oceans Expedition from... Um, 2009 to 2012 was to do this first global study of marine plankton and essentially plankton is the one of the few organisms that you know is spread throughout um, the ocean Mm -hmm. and so they were able to get take the pulse of the planet is basically the way that they are framing it and by studying plankton they'll learn more about the health of the ocean. Plankton comes from the Greek word planktos, which means wandering. Any living creature carried along by ocean currents is classified as plankton. It ranges in size from the tiniest virus to siphonophores, the longest animals in the world, and also includes microscopic algae, krill or fish larvae. Some plankton, like these salps, drift all their lives. Others, like mollusks and fish, are only planktonic during their embryonic or larval state. When they reach adulthood, they settle or swim freely. Planktonic organisms play important roles in human life. Many microscopic species get their energy from photosynthesis. They absorb carbon dioxide and produce oxygen. Thus, they constantly renew the air we breathe. Plankton has also been a great provider of fossil energy. When it dies, it sinks to the seabed. This layer of sediment has fossilized for more than a billion years, producing our precious oil. Finally, plankton nourishes us. It's the basis of the food chain in which the large eat the small. Without plankton, there would be no fish. Now, Kanisa, um, this segment was very different in terms of its production. So, uh, you know, in the previous one, you know, you were on the beach, wind was blowing, you could feel sort of the salt spray in our faces. But this one is a little bit different. I mean, um, was it was it produced? I mean, was it in the in the studio? How how would the, how did this this piece come to be? Well, for this piece, we actually went on to the Tara and mm-hmm. we were able to talk with. Um, all the scientists and, as well as the crew, which is an interesting mix because the crew are intimately involved in the science. Uh, as you will, it's a small boat. They take 14 people and, and they're at sea for a month at a time. Um, but some of the pieces, the, the, the clip you just heard was a voiceover about plankton from the French Center for National Scientific Research. And so that was a piece that they allowed us to use in the show. So we get B-roll, some that we take ourselves, which is the cutaways that we want to show. So we want to show pictures of plankton. So some of the cutaways in the Tara episode are ones that we took, and then others are ones that the scientists shared with mm-hmm. us. So this piece of voiceover was specifically produced um, for Tara um, 
about plankton. Now, the Tara Oceans mission sounds a little bit like a, 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 a mission that we covered here on Bite Marks Cafe recently, Fall right? Four. Yeah, for uh, the uh, Schmidt Institute, uh, Ocean Institute. I mean, they're actually uh, docked uh, over at the uh, UH uh, docking area over uh, by Sand Island. And I guess you know, they'll be here for about a year. And I think you're planning to do uh, some episodes with them as well. We are, and, and it's a fascinating comparison because the Tara is such a, a small um, schooner on the water. You know, you're you're very um, sort of a visceral feeling, and the, and the Falcor, although I've not been on it yet, the the images that I've seen, it's this giant research vessel with you know enormous walk-in refrigerators and oh, things yeah. like that. Oh yeah, if you that. get a chance to go, I mean, I think their meals are probably really good. <laughs> I have heard. <laughs> I I'm looking forward to it, and so that's kind of one of our purposes is to cover the spectrum from you know really small research endeavors. Um, to these large-scale operations and, mm-hmm. and kind of everything in between and, and give people a feel for you, you can do a global study um, on a small boat or you can do a global study on one of these large research vessels and what are the differences. And, and a lot of times it has to do with your, your study goal. Mm-hmm. Now, you have a, a short clip uh, of the Tara Ocean, and I want you to just uh, introduce them. This is a very short clip. Sure. This one is by technician Sarah Searson, and she's talking about the role of people in science. I'm just at the at the sharp end and I feel that if I look behind me there are hundreds of people involved in Tara, hundreds of scientists, you know, hundreds of people that are looking after the logistics and getting me here and I touch it first, (laughs) you know what I mean? And I know that behind me there's hundreds of people and years before it's finished, you know what I mean? It's kind of a neat feeling. Now, um, among uh, there's a wide variety of people that you've been able to profile in this program, and it's amazing to me the number of episodes that you've produced. How many episodes in this first season? We have 19. That's you know that's amazing. That's almost as much as an actual television you know series, and it's something that's being done um, uh, at the University of Hawaii, and I'm, I'm really impressed with that. And of course, you've had an opportunity to talk to some researchers at UH, correct? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think next we're going to hear from UH researcher Jeff Drazen, and he's going to talk about the conservation of some of our deep-sea fish. So Monchong and Opa are deep-sea fishes, which are very prevalent in fish markets mm-hmm. today. And in the nearshore environment here in Hawaii, we also have a fishery for uh, Onaga and Ehu and some very deep-living snappers, and that fishery goes down to, say, uh, 1,200 or 1,300 feet. And these animals here in Hawaii, as most deep sea stocks are worldwide, are being overexploited. As we are discovering, and something that we're studying here in the lab, is that the depth of occurrence of species correlates very well with their pace of life, their metabolic rates, and their growth rates. Deeper living animals grow slowly, and they have very low metabolisms. Shallow living animals, very fast paced. So, in these animals that we're looking at um, that are exploited here in Hawaii, one method to conserve these stocks and sustainably fish for them is by closing certain zones to fishing. Uh-huh. And this is a method that's being explored right now by the state and, and by NOAA, the federal government. And, and, and we are working, principally doing the, the, the field effort and trying to understand whether this, this area, these areas that have been set aside as no fishing zones are going to bring back some of these deep water fish stocks. And by bring back, I mean more fish and bigger fish. Okay. And we're starting to see that the answer is yes. Now, um, is this a show that's already been aired? Because I think uh, you know, this is 
the, the, the program on K5 is brand new. I think it's only been on for like maybe three, four weeks. Yeah, so you can actually find our, our schedule of airing on uh, voiceofthesea.org, but this is from an episode called Deep Sea Lab, and it's actually our ninth episode scheduled, so you can watch it for the first time on April 27th. Mm-hmm. It'll be on K5. Well, we would definitely appreciate the opportunity to preview some of these programs and hear some of these voices, many of which, of course, we are jealous and we'll do our best to get on our program as well. <laughs> but uh, so we, there's a little bit more coming from Jeff Drazen, correct? Yeah. And actually, the next clip is, is really wonderful because he's going to talk about the current discovery of new organisms in the deep sea, which is amazing in 2014. The deep ocean is, surrounds Hawaii. and It's the biggest ecosystem on the planet and certainly the biggest ecosystem in our waters. It uh, holds most of the biomass, on the, or a substantial portion of the biomass on the planet. Yet, it being so unexplored, we're still learning about what lives there. Uh-huh. And we find new species all the time. Oh, one, of the, one of the ways, it's very exciting, even large fishes and things that we don't, didn't think could live here or had never seen before, we still find those today. So this is not the kind of science that just took place 100 years ago when all the big expeditionary um, um, cruises were going on, but it happens now. We definitely want to talk about um, your plans for your next season, but uh, um, this is, has been an interesting experience to incorporate these clips into our program. Um, Kanisa, can you tell us the last um, voice we'll hear? Um, yeah, so the last voice is from um, USGS uh, scientist Matt Patrick, and we're actually on the big island at the Kilauea volcano and flows, and he's... Uh, sharing a little bit about how the land's interacting with the ocean. The Hawaiian volcanoes, they erupt normally in one of two spots. You have the caldera or the rift zones. Um, at Kilauea, in- what's interesting right now is that we have eruptions in both of those locations going on simultaneous. And where is this lava flow coming from? This is coming from the east rift zone. And when people are concerned about VOG or the chemicals that are released <laughs> from the volcano that's mostly coming from Pu'o? For the most part from Pu'o, that was the active vent. But three years ago, the summit eruption started, and so now we have two contributors to VOG. And the chemicals that are coming out of those plumes, it changes over time. Yeah, and distance. Um, the, the VOG, yeah, it's a mixture of sulfur dioxide and acid particles like H2SO4. When you're at the vent, uh, it's mostly sulfur dioxide but that sulfur dioxide converts into acid droplets, H2SO4, uh, over distances. So if you were in Kona, you know, that many miles from the vent, you would have more of those acid droplets um, than um, you would at the vent. Yeah, you know, I could actually sense the um, the the sulfur in the air in in, in the <laughs> breeze that was blowing on your microphone there. Now, Kanisa, what was the most challenging or maybe most surprise? I mean, it sounds like you're going to some pretty interesting environments. I mean, did any of them really kind of knock you off your feet? Yes, I, I you knocked me speechless right there. <laughs> I I think that you know we got to travel to um, Palau and Guam and also American Samoa and and those episodes are upcoming and I think some of the travels have been really eye-opening and and speaking to people and talking about some of the same issues that we're dealing with here in Hawaii and how are Mm -hmm. they addressing those in other parts of the Pacific and I, I think our viewers will really appreciate hearing hearing those stories. Now, of course, if you uh, went down to Palau, you probably did a piece uh, on uh, Jellyfish Lake. 
we did do a piece on, on jellyfish lake. We had a wonderful um, Palawan scientist, Gerda Utarm, who'd actually done some work here at um, Kiwalo Marine Laboratory. And she's there now. And she was able to share with me a lot about how they study the jellies in Jellyfish Lake. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, that's a, that's a, I mean, it's a, a tourist attraction. But uh, I'm hoping that it doesn't get too ecologically damaged by all the people that ultimately go there to visit. But it's a, it's a fascinating sort of enclosed water resource that uh, these, these jellyfish sort of have evolved in it. Yeah, and it was actually, I'm very lucky, it was my second time going there, and it's really, I've not been to space, but I have to say, it feels like you're in space, mm-hmm. because you're just in this water, and it's it's not moving, and then there's just millions of jellies floating, and they're all different sizes, and so you lose sense of a, a spatial scale. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, Kanisa, I mean, um, th- again, your broadcasts are still just sort of beginning in this uh, season. Um, 19 episodes after they air on K5 locally, you can then go to voiceofthesea.org and watch them online. And anyone can, anywhere in the world, because it is part of this curriculum you're making available. But I'm kind of curious, I mean, already with these stories and all of these adventures and talking about how you didn't get to everything or couldn't include everything, what's ahead? Do you have funding for season two of Voice of the Sea? We do have funding for season two, and, and we're working on a, a season three right now. But we're and and we're actively looking for some sponsorship. So at the moment, uh, we have no commercials that we've put in the show. We have public service announcements for the University of Hawaii and for NOAA. Uh, but we're going to be looking to continue the show past the funding that we have now. Oh, so sure. actually make it uh, a commercially funded production like in like other television shows. Well, I'd prefer to stay in the nonprofit oh, the realm underwriting. If, if if we can, um, because I really like that we're not selling anything, mm-hmm. and that's sort so. So the second season has already been sort of shot and in the can, so to speak. Um, yes, it's been shot, but we're still working uh-huh. on on and editing it. Like nineteen episodes as well. That's correct. Still an incredible that's amount of lot. content to be putting together. Can you give us a little couple of little teasers? Sure. We um, traveled to American Samoa and we learned about uh, the Quest program, which is studying, uh, bringing students in and and teaching them how to do marine science. We did some work in the national park there in the crown of thorns, the starfish Mm -hmm. er eradication problem that they're they're having. Um, We learned about uh, rebreather diving. And so that was pretty fascinating. Give us the time again, the time for the show on K5. We air at 6 p.m. on Sundays. And if somebody wants more information or to watch previously aired episodes, where do they go? Voiceofthesea.org. Oh, wow, this is great. Knessa Duncan, uh, Duncan Serafin is an associate professor over at the University of Hawaii. And, of course, uh, we want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about the evolving digital library. And, of course, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show over on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at BiteMarksCafe.org. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at ByteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our special song pick of the week. Of course, Kanisa chose it just, uh, Kanisa <laughs> chose it just for us. Uh, here's the theme song to Voice of the Sea. And, of course, we'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.